My name is Todd Daly. I am a professor of theology and ethics at Urbana Seminary and occasional preacher here at Windsor Road when Randy is out of town. And we're finishing up a series called uh, Passages That Pump Me Up. So um, I have to confess that when Randy asked me to preach uh, a passage in this series, I had already picked out this passage in Matthew 7. And as I was going through it, I was anything but pumped up. But I also figured it was too late. And uh, the more time I actually spent with this passage, the more convicted and pumped up I became. So I think that could be a good thing. Uh, But I'll let you be the judge of that, which is somewhat ironic because the message is about not judging. Um, um, So uh, maybe I should pray first and then, then we'll get started. Father, take uh, what is good here and use it for your glory and for uh, your kingdom, and everything else, redeem it and use it as you see fit. In your name we pray, amen. Judge not, Jesus says, and at first glance, we might think that this would be the easiest or most popular command that Christ could ever possibly give, especially in our culture, where truth seems to be increasingly relative or reduced to something that is mere preference, where only the most disturbing moral taboos earn any kind of outright condemnation. Jesus' words are often parroted in our culture, right? Who am I to judge? Not that there's anything wrong with that. I've never walked in their shoes. You like chocolate, I like strawberry. It's all good, right? You do you. And in the extreme, we might be led to conclude that we should never judge anyone, except, of course, those who judge. Everyone just needs to back off. Uh, How odd is it then that Christians are often best known and identified as being unkind and judgmental? There you go. (laughs) One Barna study indicated about a decade ago that nearly 90% of respondents found Christians to be judgmental and hypocritical. I wonder what that percentage would be today. In fact, I I made the mistake of typing in that phrase on Google, why are Christians so judgmental? And uh, a whole bunch of sites came up, and the top 15 or 20 were actually written by Christians. And so I started to read through them. And after uh, a few minutes, I I came to the conclusion that we should add defensive to the list of (laughs) judgmental and hypocritical. Now, some of this might be explained by the fact that we live in a culture that is increasingly non-judgmental, or so it would seem. So, like, any stand for truth kind of comes off as being uh, self-righteous or judgmental. And I think there might be some truth to that, but I think that our culture actually is judgmental. And what's worse, it's Christians who often lead the way. We're frankly often best best known rather for what we oppose or what we're against, what we strongly disapprove of or outright condemn. Think about this. We're against abortion. We're against gay rights. We're against gambling and swearing. 
which often go together. Um, <laughs> we're against evolution, we're against environmentalists and tree huggers, we're against social justice, socialized medicine, or any philosophy that contains the word social. We're against other Christians, whether liberal mainliners like Methodists or Episcopalians or Lutherans or the more conservative Roman Catholics. We're against Harry Potter and even the Teletubbies. The Teletubbies. I'm kind of with you on that one. Uh, my... <laughs> My, my kids loved that show, and uh, it was, you know, I find that mildly disturbing. <laughs> but what, we condemn each other on Facebook. We avoid making eye contact with our tattoo-laden, weed-smoking coworker. We condemn our noisy neighbor for throwing parties late into the night and generally enjoying life. We can also be judgmental and condemning of our brothers and sisters in Christ though often we're more sophisticated here, maybe we're deliberately cool to others in church whose political persuasions don't seem to line up with ours. We cultivate skills in avoiding certain people on Sunday morning. We readily fault other Christians for being too lenient or too strict or too forgiving or too judgmental. After the service, we render our verdicts. You know, what did you think of that worship this morning? Which, by the way, I made this comment or last, last service. It's, it's been outstanding and excellent. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. We, I, I need more of that in my life. And let's not even get started about the sermon, although that never happens with Randy here. Um, you know, I've had that happen a few times, and I, it's, you know, because... Um, it's, you're only talking, right? Everybody talks, so um, how hard can it be to stand up here and preach a sermon? Uh, and so my, my, what I want to do is just say, go ahead, be my guest, just um, give it a whirl. Um, we find plenty of things to judge. I'd never let my kids get by with that kind of behavior. Or others' appearances, wow. I can't believe they wore that to church or he really needs to exercise more if he ever hopes to walk his daughter down the aisle, or she's having trouble losing that baby weight. And then we have the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, which is on page 812 in your Bibles. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. And it's kind of heavy. 
And one of the first things I'd like to do is to set this passage in, in its broader context, which is the Sermon on the Mount, right? The greatest, most brilliant sermon ever preached. Jesus is talking about what the good life looks like and what it means to be a disciple in God's kingdom. And often here, Jesus is misread as laying down a set of stricter, harsher rules for Christians to follow that just builds on what was coming or what had come in the Old Testament law. Right? It used to be don't murder. Now you're guilty of murder if you hate your brother. It used to be don't commit adultery, but now you're actually guilty of adultery for every lustful glance. Divorce used to be okay or at least allowed, but now it's forbidden unless your spouse has cheated. As one theologian put it, it's not uncommon for Christian ethicists to make Christ meaner than Moses. And here I'm going to interject a brief commercial. Uh, since I teach Christian ethics at Urbana Seminary and happen to be teaching a class on this this fall, where we deal with questions like this in greater detail. How do you use the Bible in Christian ethics? How do we handle the statements of Jesus and interact with the problems of our world? We look at divorce and war and euthanasia and gen genetics and consider irreverent questions like who would Jesus kill? And you're also invited to put really hard questions to the professor. Uh, okay, commercial over. Uh, back to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it tells us about what life is like in God's kingdom and the behaviors that are endemic to that kingdom. And it follows this basic kind of flow. It, it opens with the Beatitudes, the, these beautiful statements that reveal the upside-downness of Christ's kingdom. Blessed are the poor and the persecuted, the meek and those who mourn. Blessed are the spiritual zeros. He speaks of being salt and light and reveals that the internal purpose of the law is one of love, which means loving our enemies and turning the other cheek. Jesus goes on to say, I am actually the fulfillment of the law. Dallas Willard noted that the law in this sermon is the law of the soul. Yes, the Old Testament law was good and beautiful, but that law can never transform the heart. That can only happen with and through Jesus. Mere external conformity must go. So murder and adultery are revealed as heart issues in the kingdom of Jesus. He exposes the bankruptcy of traditional morality with these kind of pithy, bombastic statements that reflect life in the kingdom. We're to drop everything on the way to church in order to be reconciled with our brother. We're to love our enemies and offer the other cheek. We're to give freely. We are to fast and pray without turning it into a show. And then a series of things to avoid. Don't let wealth grab hold of your heart. Don't worry. Your father knows what you need. And here in chapter 7, don't judge. Because Jesus knows just how destructive judgment can be among believers. He knows our tendency to judge others, and most especially those who are closest to us. And so he has a few words for us, for the fault finders, the fixers, and the overly critical, which ought to cover just about everyone here. 
when we are tempted to pass judgment on others, we need to be conscious of God's judgment. Ouch, this is heavy. I, I don't actually like this point in the sermon. Judge not. And right away we appear to have some kind of problem because it seems impossible to live in a world without making some judgments and decisions. This sounds like some type of liberal gospel again. And it's, uh, it's even in our passage. There's this admission that we have to make discernment, discerning decisions. We have to judge. How can we avoid casting pearls before pigs without first making some kind of a judgment? Or how can we correct a brother or sister in Christ without making some kind of judgment? So part of the challenge here is that this word judgment is quite broad. It has a lot of meanings and it's determined primarily by context. But in general, it means to separate, to sift, to part, to discern, to decide. That can be good, it can be bad, again, depending on context. And in a positive sense, an act of discernment is founded on wisdom and grace. But in the negative, it can mean being overly harsh and judgmental and critical. And in the extreme, it means to condemn. Jesus is addressing condemning here. And he's telling us very forcefully, stop doing it. Stop condemning your brothers and sisters completely. In fact, the verb form here suggests when he says no very strongly that this is something that we've been continuing to doing. And so he says, stop continuing to judge, which means never do it again. One English translation says, don't ever judge, which gets the force of that verb. And Jesus goes on to tell us why. In order that we not be judged. Here we find a reference to the big one, right? The great white throne, the final judgment. Now that same word is used both in the sense of us judging, but also what is coming to us, how we will be judged. Something that will happen to us. We are to be mindful that one day we will have to give an account for our own judgments and actions. And Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, highlights this theme. He's, he's got a Jewish background. He is writing for a Jewish audience, and so he focuses more on judgment, reward, and punishment. And it's right here, actually, in this lengthy sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. If, if you just flip back a page to chapter 5, in 5.22, Jesus says, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Where's the calm, happy, smiling, patient Jesus? Later on, a few verses later, cut off your hand and pluck out your eye if necessary because it's better to lose part of your body here than to suffer in your whole body in hell. That's mildly frightening. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons, perform many miracles? Later on here in chapter 7, yet the Lord dismisses them as evil doers. I never knew you. Why highlight this judgment? Well, in part because it's unavoidable. It is, it is a core feature of the ministry of Jesus. But we need to keep asking why. Why highlight judgment? Because without judgment, repentance and forgiveness makes little sense. 
if we're not that bad off, our solution need not be so radical. And yes, of course, Jesus routinely demonstrates his power to freely forgive throughout the Gospels. When the woman was caught in adultery and Jesus asked her, does no one condemn you? I suspect that she was mildly shocked when he said, neither do I. But even with this forgiveness promised in Christ, we are warned against condemning and fault-finding. Because when we do, we open ourselves up to God's coming judgment of us. You remember that time you weren't patient with so-and-so, but you preached a sermon on patience? It's easy to forget of this coming judgment. And in verse 2, he takes us a little bit further. His wording here reflects a kind of Hebrew parallelism that we find in the Old Testament, like in the Psalms. It's in a poetic form called parallelism, where we find a phrase repeated, only with slightly different wording. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured you, measured with you. In other words, it might mean uh, what goes around comes around. Right? Jesus could be referring to the plane of human judgment. If you dole out some criticism, you should expect to get it back in your face. Others might uh, be tempted to do that and say, hey, look in the mirror. But I think it more likely refers to God's judgment, which is much more frightening. And again, this doesn't mean losing our salvation. I mean, if we're thrown back on our own abilities to judge and not judge, then we're right back into a works-based religion. Yet Christ comes and says, you will have to give an account to me for how you looked at others. With the measure you use, it will be measured with you. How do you measure people? What's your standard? Whatever kind of criteria or uh, standard we use and apply to others, we must be prepared to have that standard applied to us by God. So we are not to condemn others for being too rigid or too tolerant or too assertive or too indifferent or for being too lax or impatient, for being too sad or too joyful, for being too uneducated or too schooled, or for swearing or addiction or lust or pride or anger, ever. Jesus is not asking us to tone it down. He's saying, stop it, because I will hold you accountable for the things you condemned in others. That is some heavy stuff. And I am thrilled to move on to the next point. When we are tempted to pass judgment on others, secondly, we should be considering our own faults. I mean, if Jesus had stopped with just don't judge, we'd be stuck in a difficult place. Yes, we're not to pass negative judgments against our brother or sister, but this does not mean that we should never exercise discerning judgment. 
That's where Jesus is headed. But first, he exposes the reality of our condemnation with this rhetorical question and this deliberately uh, ridiculous, grotesque imagery as a way to kind of shock us all into sensibility. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust, some translations would say, the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye when you effectively have a giant support plank like from a ship, a huge support beam lodged in your own eye. He's seizing there on the imagery of uh, the eye as a metaphor for vision. There's, there's actually in this verse, verse 3, something called a chiasm going on. Um, it sounds like kind of an illness that can be treated, but um, it's, it's actually uh, this rhetorical device uh, and it's, it's named after uh, the, the Greek letter chi, right, which uh, looks like an X. Uh, and you can kind of see, I've, I've put kind of an X up there. This, this word order that you see here reflects the original language. And notice, uh, notice how there's a parallelism there that narrows down until when we get to the, closer to the center, we see the same word rep repeated twice, which is a big deal. But then we also see the brother set against ourselves. This is a way of saying, pay attention, this is the big point of this verse. This is also a way of saying that I'm kind of nerdy at times, and I find this stuff enjoyable. Um, there's actually a, thank you, there's, um, bless you, sister. Um, there's actually a bigger chias, chiasm going on in verses 4 and 5, but that would, uh, that would take way too many PowerPoint slides, and I will spare you the gory details. A chiasm. Um, here's, here's the big deal. Too often, judging blinds us to our own faults. And it affects our vision of others. We see and condemn shortcomings in everybody else, but we fail to notice our own issues. We have very large blind spots when it comes to our own character. And when we render negative judgments, we are exercising selective perception. If you've got a log or a plank in your own eye, how can you possibly see to help out your brother or sister? And note that that doesn't necessarily mean that the person judging is more of a sinner than the person being judged. It's about blindness to one's own faults. And then he, can, he moves the illustration forward by moving from fault-finding to those of us who are fixers. Here, let me help you out with that tiny little insignificant speck of sawdust. Pay no attention to this gaping huge plank in my eye. It's comical. How can you possibly be in any situation to help? I think the biblical scholar Leon Morris uh, summed it up perfectly. He says, Jesus is drawing attention to a curious feature of the human race in which profound Ignorance of oneself is so often combined with an arrogant presumption of knowledge about others, and especially their faults. I once heard a brief radio clip, a segment on driving, and they featured a few statements that are just remarkably insightful from the comedian George Carlin. Um, and he pointed out how funny it is that we all seem to drive the correct speed and everyone else is at fault. So he says, for instance, when you're on the road 
and you find someone driving too slowly and you've got to pass them up. What do you say? Well, you pass them and you say, look at that idiot. Where does he learn to, he needs to learn to drive. But then when you pass up that car and then someone comes flying by you in the left lane, what do we do? Well, that guy's a maniac. He's out of control. Right? The roads are filled with idiots and maniacs, except for you. You're the one driving just the right speed. <laughs> Jesus has a word for such individuals, and it's called hypocrite. In both of the examples in this text, the judger loses sight of the true nature of his or her condition. When we condemn others of the very things that we are guilty of, we become unwitting hypocrites. It, it'd be somewhat like uh, giving professional golfer like Justin, John, Dustin Johnson or Tiger Woods advice on their putting because you recently shot three under par at the local putt-putt course. <laughs> or telling any hitter on the Cubs or the Cardinals how they need to correct their stance in the batter's box. You know, yeah, I was watching you on TV the other day, um, right, when you can't hit a wiffle ball out of your own backyard. Or imagine telling Julia Child how she could add a little dash to her French cuisine when your idea of culinary creativity consists of adding frozen veggies to some ramen noodles. <laughs> right? We become know-it-alls, fault-finders, and people-fixers. Know-it-alls are challenging people. Anyone here know a know-it-all? Anyone? Okay. How many of you are sitting next to one? No, I'm just, that was a test, by the way. That was... So, so what are we to do? And, and finally, there's some hint of a positive exhortation here. We are to remove the barriers to our own vision, which I think means nothing more than learning to see ourselves as Christ sees us and our brother or sister. We need to deal with our own junk. But then it gets frustratingly ambiguous because he doesn't give us three simple steps that we can employ. He doesn't specifically say here, we find clues earlier in this sermon, but that's the best we're given. If you want to be Christ followers, walkers in the way, we do have a template for prayer in chapter 6, right? The Lord's Prayer that not only underscores our daily need for forgiveness, but presupposes that we are daily forgiving those uh, among us, and especially forgiving those who owe us an apology. You know how hard it is to do that? But if you do it three times a day when you wake up in the morning, and maybe at lunch, and maybe before you go to bed, and if you've already got it memorized, like I would imagine a large percentage here have, then that might be possible. We might even combine it with some type of fasting, not as a rigid kind of law for us to obey, but about engaging in practices that lets Christ transform our heart. Maybe that means we fast or skip a meal only for a season. It's, it's a place where that bodily hunger can serve as a prompt for us to pray for a similar hunger for righteousness and for a clearer vision of our own moral faults and shortcomings. 
And if, if you really want to take a risk, ask, ask a close, trusted friend, hey, are you, do you see anything in me that needs attention? Because only after we've removed the log are we in any place to offer assistance to others, which brings us mercifully to the last point. When we are tempted to find fault or judge, pass judgment on others, we should be careful in our correction. In verse 5, we saw that refraining from critical condemnation and fault-finding doesn't mean that we never offer uh, advice or exercise discernment in helping a brother or sister. But I also suspect this may be much rarer than it currently is right now. Certainly, it can only be undertaken once we're becoming the kinds of disciples that are envisioned in the Sermon on the Mount. So if verse 5 speaks of being careful in how we correct, verse 6, which has posed innumerable challenges for scholars, I think suggests that we need to be wise in who we correct. Some people may not be ready to hear what you have to say. And I can give a great example of that. A few years ago, not a few years ago, many years ago, um, I, uh, my first job out of college was as a uh, computer repair person, but I had to, I had to fly a lot. My, my territory was basically everything east of Kansas City to the, to the east coast. And after a couple years, I had racked up enough frequent flyer miles to take myself and a friend to Australia on first-class tickets. Uh, and those first-class tickets also got me into the business class lounge at O'Hare. Now, when I traveled for work, I always had to wear a suit. This was an era when people actually wore suits. And so I was delighted for once to be able to fly and not have to wear uh, something uncomfortable. Now, this plan of mine wasn't entirely premeditated, but I thought it would be kind of fun to show up at the lounge in less than proper attire just so that I could check people's reaction and perhaps teach them something about judging by appearances. So in this mission of wisdom and learning, uh, you know, I, I showed up at the business class lounge, right? This is all the collective wisdom of my 22 years on earth at this point. Uh, I show up in flip-flops and ripped shorts and a wrinkled t-shirt and a ball cap and I hadn't shaved. And I walk in and I, I just say to the receptionist, good afternoon. Right? And I just make my way towards those magical double doors where they've got real silverware and lots of food and those hot, moist, lemony-scented towelettes. Remember when they used to give those out? Um, and immediately she spots me and says, can I help you? But no, now, clearly, um, she was being polite, but I know what the tone of her voice said. The tone of her voice said, uh, I think you're in the wrong place. And I said, uh, no, I don't need any help. I'm just, you know, just headed to the lounge. Um, in which she said, well, I'm going to need to see your ticket. And so, yeah, here's the moment. Okay, I'll show you my ticket. Sure. So I pull out my international first-class tickets, and casually hand them over to her. And immediately her expression changes. I mean, she looked at me, looked at the tickets. Um, and then she changed her tone of voice. She said, very good. Enjoy your flight, Mr. Daly. And I thought, well, well that's more like it. <laughs> it's funny, though. Although she didn't show it, I'm sure 
that she was deeply appreciative for me pointing out her moral blind spot. <laughs> Clearly, she had a new perspective on life. From now on, she was going to be nice to everyone, regardless of what they looked like. Yeah, it was a pretty snarky thing to do. That's, that's not how to correct somebody or point out a blind spot. If anything, my pearls of wisdom probably accomplished nothing but creating irritation and resentment. But careful correction requires clear vision. When Jesus says that we will be able to see clearly in verse 5, this word literally means to see into or to see through. And I think it's, deliberate, it's a deliberate modification of a simpler verb that just means to see. It's very close to this generic Greek word that just means to see or look at. Uh, the specifics don't matter, but I suspect that what's going on here is something like this. When we judge, we merely look at another person. But when we're aware of our own faults and are humble before Christ, we are now able to look into a person's life. Especially our enemies and those who so often irritate and offend us and rub us the wrong way. And so if you have that person in your mind now, uh, I want to invite you to think about who that person is. Go ahead, conjure them up in your mind, and imagine that you're about 20 or 30 feet in front of them, and they're walking right toward you, and there are no escape exits. Maybe they're the know-it-all, and maybe they treat everyone else who is not as educated as they are as second-class citizens. Maybe they think the world is made to serve them. Maybe they're the type that take credit for everybody else's work, but never do their own share. Maybe they're the obnoxious Republican or the bitter Democrat. Maybe it's the mom who was always so put together, right, whose kids are well-behaved and who only feeds her kids healthy foods like kale and toasted quinoa. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Or maybe it's the mom who feeds her family at the drive-thru, whose kids are always disheveled and is constantly asking you to watch her kids while she tries to make ends meet. Maybe it's the one who always likes to point out when you're breaking the rules. Or maybe it's the person who thinks that the rules don't apply to them. Maybe they're needy and clingy and always seem to be a victim and you just don't have the emotional energy to give them the time of day. Maybe they're a no kind of person, perpetually angry over the moral decay in our world and always pointing out what's wrong with it. Maybe they're a backstabber. Or maybe it's someone even closer to you, your spouse, your mother, your ex-husband or ex-wife. But now imagine that you see Jesus coming up behind them because you're able to see into or see through them. And unlike you, he is wearing an expression of sheer joy and delight. Like when you're anticipating a reunion of a long-lost best friend. And you can tell that he's hoping to surprise them with a bear hug. 
And you begin to think that while they probably don't deserve it, they probably need it. And then it dawns on you, as you watch this scene unfold, that you've been looking in a mirror. Here's the real take home. Condemning wrecks relationships and kills community. When we condemn our brother, our sister, we wreck the relationship and we kill the community. To condemn someone is to exclude them. And Dallas Willard, too many perceptive uh, comments, but this one, this one was especially uh, insightful. He said, when we condemn another, we really communicate that he or she is in some deep and just possibly irredeemable way bad. Bad as a whole and to be rejected. In, the, uh, in our eyes, the condemned is among the discards of human life. He or she is not acceptable. We sentence that person to exclusion. And here we're at the deepest irony of all, that when we condemn another person for whom Jesus has died, the same Jesus still holds out an offer of forgiveness as the one who was judged and condemned for us in our place. I had a PowerPoint slide for this Bonhoeffer quote, and then I changed it at the last minute, and now I regret it. But uh, in, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Bonhoeffer was reflecting on this, he made this statement that just jumped out at me, and I think it kind of echoes this illustration, and now I can hope I can remember it. Uh, he said something along these lines. For disciples of Christ, we must view other people as those to whom Jesus comes. And then he also said this, which is on a PowerPoint slide. Um, and it kind of sums up the passage nicely. Disciples cannot excuse themselves in themselves what they condemn in others. Now they are as tough on the evil in themselves as they used to be on the evil in others and as considerate of evil in others as they are of themselves. For our evil is no different than the evil in others. This is how Christ followers are to behave. And I think we need to ask whether we're really doing this, especially when it seems over the last week or so, Christians have been tripping over themselves to out-condemn the other of what took place in Virginia. We've been going out of our way to spread the condemnation around, not only to the perpetrators, but to the victims. And if we're honest, it's really quite easy to stand behind a pulpit and denounce white supremacist violence in Virginia. No doubt we should condemn racism and violence. But I still think we need to ask another question. If that's all we do, what is Christian about that? If that's all we do, what is Christian about that? A couple decades ago, uh, 58-year-old blues musician Daryl Davis decided to do something absolutely insane. 
by befriending white supremacists and KKK members, by attending rallies and dining with them in their homes. He never tried to convert any of them. His philosophy, philosophy was quite simple. Uh, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? Look at me and tell me to my face why you should lynch me. A dangerous mission to be sure. And he was often given grief by those in his own community. He was called Uncle Tom. He's called an Oreo. High-ranking members of the NAACP met with him and urged him to stop. They came to his home and said, we've worked so hard to move 10 steps forward, and here you are sitting down with the enemy having dinner, putting us 20 steps back. And so Davis stood up and took them to a room in his house full of robes and hoods from members who had abandoned their hateful ideology because of his friendship. And then he said, I'm putting a dent into racism. How many robes and hoods have you collected? Then they shut up, he said. Do we have rooms like that in our house? Or even a closet? I mean, my closets are full of junk and skeletons. And I also want to be really clear here that I am not trying to put something on the black community. This is on all of us who are already participants in the kingdom of God, where there are no African Americans or Caucasians or Hispanics or Jews or Asians or Palestinians, because those distinctions do not exist in God's kingdom. Have we forgotten the scandal of the gospel? I don't know if Daryl Davis is a Christian, but his response to extremism seems to be more Christ-like than what we've seen from the Christian community this past week, especially Christian leaders and pastors. And of course, David strongly, uh, Davis rather strongly opposed the immoral message of white supremacy, but he didn't condemn them. He did not relegate them to the trash heap of human history. And because he didn't condemn them, he could become an agent of reconciliation. But frankly, I think it's much easier for us to condemn from a distance than to be scandalized by who we love. And this is not a liberal love without judgment, but a love in light of God's judgment. And as soon as we begin to say among ourselves, Jesus would never associate with, you know, fill in the blank, then it's clear that we need some theology. For if Jesus has taken the trouble to die for us, he most certainly has died for the white supremacist too, who, like us, also harbors anger and pride and lust and greed. We all do in our hearts. The cross of Christ is the great equalizer because here we all come up woefully short. Here we are all empty-handed beggars before God. And we ought not to be known for our condemnation, but for our scandalous love that leaves us vulnerable to condemnation from others. 
And if that should happen, we'll find ourselves in good company with the one who was condemned in our place. Let's pray. A prayer from St. Ephraim the Syrian. O Lord Jesus and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, faint-heartedness, lust of power, and idle talk. But give me rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, Lord, grant me the gift of sorrow over my own sin. Yea, Lord and King, grant me to see mine own errors and not to condemn my brother. For blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen.